Shouts out to the four people that said "woo" when they said Killer Mike. Yeah. All right. I was like, that shit empty out there, dog. I was about to say, no, this is a, this a hip-hop show. We getting, we getting call and response early out here. Yep. How y'all doing? Y'all look good? How y'all feeling? All right. Well, hey, look, I mean, obviously you don't need a whole lot of introduction, you know, and I just like to have a chat up here. But, like, obviously the premise is we're trying to introduce Michael Render, right? Yep. So we know, we know Killer Mike from all yep. the dope music and from the, Run the Jewels and all of that. But what would you say is the difference between Mike Render and Killer Mike? How the bank lets me cash checks is Michael Render. <laughs> <laughs> um, Killer Mike is the product of the imagination of a nine-year-old kid, um, a 12-year-old rap enthusiast and a 15-year-old battle rapper. At nine years old, I decided I was going to be a rapper. Um, at 12 years old, I, I literally got fearless about my idea. And at 15 years old in a rap battle, I earned the name Killer Mike. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I would have named me like Handsome Mike, Fly Guy Mike, Can I Get You Pregnant Mike. Um, <laughs> and he's a superhero of sorts. He's badass. He kicks ass on the mics. He talks shit to politicians and, 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 and spits in the face of authority and government. And really, he's a product of a, of a kid who grew up in an all-black community. I grew up in a neighborhood called the Collier Heights and Adamsville community in Atlanta, Georgia. And all my heroes and villains looked like me. So when Dr. King talks about the content of someone's character versus their color, I got to live that existence. His parents lived in that neighborhood. The richest black developers in the country lived in that neighborhood. And a lot of just working class, regular black folks, poor and working class folks like my grandparents yeah. lived in that neighborhood. So I got a chance to see that anything was possible, not in theory. It lived two streets behind me, anything was possible. I got a chance to see that my grandparents, who were diametrically opposed politically, one would go for more candidates that seemed more libertarian and conservative, even though they were black. The other one would go for candidates that were more democratic and liberal, and they were black. So everything around me was black. I didn't have three white teachers my whole life. I went to Collier Heights Elementary, Frederick Douglass High School, and then Morehouse College. So I am, I tell people when you say, well, what if black power works? I'm the product of it. But being a product of it not only made me competent and confident as a human being, it helped me understand that I'm just a human being. And other human beings are like me. There are human beings in India like me. There are human beings in Africa like me. There are human beings in South and North America and Europe like me. There are human beings that get to live only within their tribe or their subset, and they get a chance to see that human beings can be either amazingly graceful and, and damn near holy, to just sinners and bullshitters. And sometimes that human being is the same person. And I've been the same person you right. know, many times in my life. So Michael Render's just a regular human being that created this character, Killer Mike, to, um, to take part in something beautiful called hip hop, but actually that staves off his fears, that grants him his desires, and that serves as a tool to communicate art to people. So, okay, this might sound like a wild question. Ain't nothing crazy, but yeah. it's like, uh, so what are some of the things that Killer Mike can say that Mike Render can't say? Um, Killer Mike, um, well, Killer Mike can make a song like Reagan. Right, I was about and to And nothing happens. Michael Render can campaign for Barney Sanders and end up in Hillary Clinton's um, campaign manager's emails. And that lets you know niggas shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> the white folks gonna kill you. <laughs> um, 
but I can feel free to say anything. I think that what art gives me the ability to do is to say it in a way where it forces you to have to sit and think about it. Because art does that. When I go to the museum and I stand in front of a picture, I may have a totally different point of view than you, but I get to stand there and take it in. No one's rushing me. No one's telling me what to think. No one's telling me if this is good for me or destructive for me. I really get to sit and process it. And I think that as an artist, I enjoy being able, like if you listen to the record I dropped a few months ago, um, Talking That Shit. Talking That Shit is over a DJ Paul beat. Shouts out, rest in peace to Lola, DJ Boo. I mean, a Gangsta Boo for putting it together. Um, shouts out, give Boo her, let's give her. Yeah. You know. That, that record ain't talking about no rapper. It's talking about all the pundits who get on television and talk shit when they don't know what they're talking about in reference to me. It's for all the people that are hypocrites that I know to be hypocrites because I actually do the work. Mm. And it, it talks about the, the black educated class in my community that often uses rappers as an example for not what to do because we're low hanging fruit. And a lot of times rappers don't know how to engage them where they are. Well, I'm a Morehouse-educated black man from Atlanta, Georgia that's lived a black experience. You can't run that same shit on me. You can't run the same bullshit on me. It's just, it's, it's, it's not gonna work. I've been an organizer since I was 15 years old. I've worked every election locally since I was five years old in my grandmother's hymn, uh, the hymn of her garment. So you just can't run the bullshit. So for me, you know, as Michael, you, you know, people got angry that I met with the governor of my state. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I have to live in this state. This guy's gonna be over my life the next four years. I need to meet with him. So you can get angry about that, but it was funny to me that after that moment passed, they were not the people still going now to the gold dome to say this isn't right. I was the only person there. I didn't see none of my detractors there. I saw one woman um, say she was gonna use her platform to take me down, and I was like, Lady, you failed at getting an Emmy. I won at getting a Grammy. I'm going to bet on me. Don't use your platform to take me down. Mm -hmm. Use your platform to build you up. There was another woman I saw. Um, someone said, you should interview him. And she was like, I'll pass. I was like, I didn't want to interview on your trash ass show anyway. But it was interesting that the woman she did interview to degrade me, this woman was at the funeral or was not at the funeral of a voter, of a voter, voters' rights organizer whose father actually taught me to organize. His name was James Orange. The woman whose died's name was Jemida Orange, and her, grand, and her mother died months after her name was Cleo Orange. This family was represented. Omar Dorsey played James Orange in the movie Selma. They have given their life to the civil rights, the work of civil rights in this country. And I found it pitiful, pissful, disgraceful that you could go on a show of someone who wasn't from my town and you're from my town. You know I know this family. You weren't at the funeral. You dragged your poor ass up there to talk on that show, but you didn't even have the respect to be at the funeral of the person doing the work. You know, Cadillac, some people got mad I did a Cadillac commercial. I used the Cadillac, they loaned me to take people to the polls. I didn't see any of those people there. So my grandmother told me a very long time ago, do the work. Just do the work. So Michael is always going to do the work, and then Killer Mike's going to get on stage and talk shit to you because I make better records than you. <laughs> and you're modest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm modest until it's time to rap. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then, um, 
you know, obviously you've put out solo music, right? I yep. mean, you know, so I guess my question is why now? You know, why are we being introduced to Mike Render now? Um, this is 20 years. This is my 20th year on March 11th, a few days ago. Um, <laughs> on March 11th, Monster dropped. And um, I appreciate everyone who supported me since then. But I, I was introduced always in addition to or by proxy. Like, so I was Outkast's little homie, and I, I made dope music, and I got some people that rocked with me for that. I, I left the major label system and went and started the Pledge series, and people jumped on for that. But I've always been either in defense, fighting against falling off, or I've always been attached to something that was, that was bigger than me of, of sorts. And as one half of the greatest rap group in the world, Run the Jewels, What I realized is we're like the X-Men. We're incredible mutants together. It's, it's insane what me and Elle do together. And with that said, every X-Man has their own life before they enter the, the, the campus with Xavier. And I knew Elle, we know Elle, we know a lot of the other people that are doing this, but people still didn't really know Michael Render. They didn't know me. and, and Sitting at home gave me an opportunity to make a group of records that just were reflective about a young African-American man who's grown up in the South, who grew up empowered. I don't, I don't really have a story of disempowerment or, or story of how I had to overcome uh, specific injustice that, were, that dealt with race as much as I had to overcome class, I had to overcome doubt, I had to overcome my own fears, I overcome myself, and I wanted people to be able to see that. So for me, I wanted to introduce you to Michael because whether you like Killer Mike or not, or whether you like Michael or not, I wanted to, to make sure you had the opportunity to know fully who I was mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and understand me in a context that's not filtered through a political race that's not filtered through whether he agrees with me on guns or not that that's not filtered through me and proxy to someone else on a song because usually i tell your favorite rappers asses up on records you can go listen to all your records i've been going popping tags i went whole world i went black thought and push a t i motherfucking went royce to five nine i went like so i know you know i can rap but i want to let you know the raps are coming from a real place okay so then, um, you know, let's back up a little bit. Obviously, you talked about your upbringing, and a lot of a lot of your upbringing makes its way into your music. You yeah, know, you hear like the Southern Black Church. You hear barbershop conversation. You hear yep. all kinds of stuff. So, yep. I guess I'm just curious from a creative standpoint: Is it how challenging is it to funnel all of that into a 45 minute thing? You know, a 45 minute project or what have you? It's a challenge. I mean. Um Man, most people have a, a, a life that is well over 50 minutes of music. But I, what I have to understand is that we may, you know, I can make 39 records. And the challenge isn't telling the truth on all 39 records. It, the challenge is whittling it down to 15 right. that people can consume. We live in a very fast world now. So say hypothetically, if I was making a record, I'd try to get about 50 to 55 minutes. I'd want a long car drive as a record, I would like for it to give you an audio experience that feels like you're watching it almost because I hate being in fucking traffic and Atlanta's traffic is shitty now. So usually I'm in traffic about an hour. So if I'm designing a power hour, you know, it'd be 14 to 15, 16 records mm -hmm. and it'd be something that felt more like an audio movie or more like an audio book or something that feels like you can stop it, jump out, go to your Walmart or your BJ's, jump back in and continue with it. So for me, I want to give you versus a song of the month 
or a record of the day and a, a driving experience or, or a listening experience that feels like you're watching something for just under an hour. Mm -hmm. So then, okay, we also, you know, keeping with the upbringing, you know, clearly you, you have very different, you have like di different opinions on a lot of different things, you know? Yeah. So I wonder then, how does all of that make its way into what you're doing now, you know? You just put it in as, as you know, every, every opinion ain't meant to be voiced on a record. You know, as an artist, man, I like smoking weed going to the Blue Flame. I know it's a famous quote for me now, but give me my wife some weed and a bunch of naked girls and some bunch of ones, we're going to have a great time. But out of that, you know, we're going to probably go to church the next morning, and then we're going to... Right, yeah, that's and what then I was going to be, you think Jesus hung out in the flame? Well, Mary Magdalene was wild girl. <laughs> I try to live a whole life and experience everything I can because it's going to find its way into music somehow. What I've spent the last two years trying to do is figure out how to make it palatable in a way that you get it, that it meets you where you are. You don't have to come where I, where I am. When I first, first record, when we made Monster, and I, um, when, I, when you heard the hook, Mama, I don't want to sell drag no more, like, I was fresh out of selling crack. I really did not want to sell drugs anymore. I remember when I got my record company advance, I went and bought 14 pounds of weed. <laughs> no bullshit. I got that shit off and I survived the, the whole following year because I was determined not to die a drug dealer. I'm sorry, I just couldn't do it. it, it Tip, one of the most beautiful things I saw when I walked in the Trap Music Museum, um, shouts out to my man and business partner, T.I. I walked in and I saw 2003, Killer Mike releases Monster, the first attempt at a conscious trap album. And it was, because everybody, everybody sold drugs in our neighborhood. The old people, the young people, the people who did drugs sold drugs. If you had any intelligence, you was like, fuck it, I'm going to do this. And I knew I wasn't supposed to be, and I've always harbored a guilt for that. And, and music has always given me an opportunity to express that. So for, for me, music and putting conscious music to street shit has always been a therapeutic way and a way to validate that the young men and women that are out there, you don't have to be limited to the options you're limited to, right. that you can push past those options. And that was my goal, and I feel like I've accomplished it. I spent the tw last 20 years of my life sharpening my knife, getting better as a rapper, better as an MC, and, and, and I'm understanding that my journey was my journey, but God had a plan. You know, that there really was a plan. I could have made some choices that would have made it maybe happen faster. I could have made some choices that would have took me all the way left. But I trust the process. I've trusted the process. And the guys that I wanted to be, you got to watch what you ask for. I wanted to be respected like Scarface. I wanted to be respected like Bun B. I wanted to hold a respect like Ice T, like Ice, Ice Cube. And if you're going to have that long of a run, you're going to have to put your nose to the grindstone and work when other people won't work. You're going to have to be misunderstood. You're going to have to push through. And um, I, I just, at the end of it, and I'm nowhere near the end, I just want to look back and be able to say, job well done. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, to that end, right, since we're talking about 20 years of Monster, how, how has your music evolved? How have you, two-part question, how has your music evolved from Monster to now, to what you're working on now? Yeah. And how have you evolved? Monster, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And, and so it's an imperfect classic to me. Like, it had all the right intentions, but I, what, what I met Cool and Dre right at the end of Making Monster. And I wish I had met them at the beginning of Making Monster because compatibly, we were musically compatible, 
but I didn't understand at, at that time with Monster that I could say, well, instead of recording right here in Stankonia and instead of using the, uh, the host of producers that I've been using and even known, I could go duck off somewhere. I could disappear for, for a quarter of a year and I can create something where I don't have to even know what it sounds like, but I could find something. Now, Monster was a dope record. Like I said, it was an imperfect classic to me. But right now, when I walk in the room, I know what the fuck I'm doing. And besides just knowing what I'm doing, I have a team around me that understands where I'm trying to go. This record um, was a and by Cuz Lightyear. Cuz Lightyear um, is also an artist. He was an artist on Mass Appeal, one of the dopest you know, artists that, that I've ever heard. We were, we were going back, doubling back around after this solo record, like, man, let's just make a villain's mixtape. He heard these songs that he had been hearing for years because we've been friends forever. And he was like, Kill, he was like, oh, I, I'm, I made a, he said, I got a, an idea. I said, what? He said, let's just work on your album. And I'm like, what the fuck you talking about? You want to hide this young dude? He said, nah, I'm an A&R. I don't even want to be on it. I'm going to A&R this album. I'm about to go on a beat hunt. I'm going to find what we're looking for. Because I think what we got in these first four or five, I think that this can be something. And man, we look up four months later, we're like, oh shit, this is a dope ass mixtape. We look up a year later, we're like, oh shit, this is a dope ass record. We fly out to LA to let No ID hear it, and he says, man, this is a dope ass mixtape. And we was like, we thought it was a record. He's like, nah, it's mixtape good. But, but, <laughs> yes, yeah, Dion, that's fucking No ID. <laughs> but he said, I'm about to show you guys how to work pro. Yeah. And he called in some of the greatest musicians and voices and writers um, in terms of helping us learning the process like Harold helping us learn the process of writing and he put us in a room full of pros and those people ended up singing writing um playing the whole entire record I remember Erica um Aaron came in with um, my man Hannibal who's a comedian and I heard her saying it just it blew me away I'm like I need you for three or four records I learned how to be confident I learned that I'm competent and I learned that I knew what the fuck I was doing I had spent 20 years learning how to be the artist I am today. 10 years ago, rap music dropped. At, right. the, at the time, I could have walked away and said, I gave you the perfect record, but it wasn't good enough. Rap music was a perfect, it was a classic classic. And right after that, we enter into the Run the Jewels phase, which is this is the 10th year. I knew the first time I got in a room with LP, within the first three hours, he's supposed to produce all of rap music. We did that. L went home, he owed a mixtape to someone. Um, it took him a longer to write. I said, well, I'm just gonna fly to New York. We'll just do the mixtape together. He was like, well, I don't have any money. I was like, I didn't ask you about money. I just want to keep rapping with you because finally it feels natural. Finally yeah. it's easy. It's not something I have to force. After making one, two, three, four, run the jewels, what I learned from L was discipline. The discipline of showing up every single fucking day with one mind, one mind on one mission, and that is to be the dopest motherfucker in the room when you hit play. And coming out of that, it was just no way that I wasn't going to take what I had learned in the X-Man University on the campus and mm. not do my Logan. I had to do it because I had acquired the skills it took to match the ambition that I had. I had required, um, I mean, I had finally acquired a, a sharpening stone that could sharpen my knife to a precise cut that would allow me to cut through all the other bullshit that's in the marketplace and say, no, this is who I am, this is where I stand, and this is how I represent where I'm from. So, and shout out to that. So, uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of us know the, the Run the Jewel story, you know, how y'all came together, but, uh, 
I'm just curious, I mean, because it came at a transitional point in your life, you know, because like you said, you came up with Monster, you were coming out with all these records, and then you come out with rap music, which like you said, was a dope-ass record. Yep. But then... It was a classic. So, and then it leads... It was a classic. <laughs> no, nah, it's 10 years. It's, yeah. No, no, Gotti from the smoking section said that. He said it feel it could be. Like Kendrick Lamar ain't rap about a motherfucker because I was just out there putting together cool shit. Like he mentioned me because it, who, who's read The Art of War? All right, we got four people. <laughs> in, in The Art of War, they tell you a story of three brothers. There's one brother who can see sickness before it ever starts. And he can tell you, take these herbs, do this, this, and you never get sick. His name never leaves the house. There's another brother that can see it when it's just starting and says, well, do this, this, and I might have to do a little of that. His name gets around the village. And there's another brother who really don't know much of shit. He can bleed veins. He can tell you this, and I hope you don't die in six months. And he's the doctor to kings and queens in the highest of honors. I'm the rapper that your other rappers come to and say, dog, that record changed the way I view shit. Just as Scarface is. When people ask me about the top five, Scarface has not dropped a rap, a whack album, and he's entered the game in 87. I say, put Scarface number one and throw whoever you want to behind him, because no one has had that. So when I say something is a classic, I'm not saying it lightly or I need my ego fed. You can put rap music to any of your favorite classic records, and you're going to have to walk away saying, fat boy did his thing. No other rapper's giving you a Reagan. No other rapper's giving you a religious experience in rap music. When I say rap music, is my religion. No other rapper's done that. So I understand an imperfect classic like Monster compared to a pure classic like rap music. And I'm going to give you some more classics before I die. Okay, so... So let's, let's stay there then, because ironically today, ironically today is the eighth anniversary of To Pimper Butterfly. Dope. Right, we were talking about that. That boy's so dope. And uh, I actually wrote a book about Kendrick that I'll be signing after this. So. Yeah, y'all show up. Let's, let's make sure he sells out today. <laughs> I was gonna say cheap plug, cheap plug. But, that, but that's also the same record where he shouts you out. Absolutely. So then my question is, when I heard that initially, I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I guess, how did that hit you when you heard when you heard him shout you out in such a big way on such a monumental LP? Rap is pugilistic poetry. Um, I was honored. I was flattered. I'm humbled. I appreciate him. I'm still waiting on my phone call to get on a song. <laughs> no, I'm very serious. Like, you know, like, I, I fuck with you. I really appreciate you. It'll be solidified when you put me on a record. That's it. You know, like, like if you look at boxing, the greatest compliment a boxer can give it, get is from another boxer. No one else has stepped in that ring. No one else knows what it's like to be up at 3 in the morning trying to figure out why this bar ain't hitting you right, and everybody says, no, nah, it's good enough. You know, no one else, no one else understands that. So I'm, I'm tremendously humbled and flattered. And with that said, man, I'd love to get in the ring one day. I want to get on a fucking record. I want to kill some shit together. Mm -hmm. Or it's just a, you know, it's a hell of a compliment, but the greatest compliment is on making a fucking record. Yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. So, again, back to, back to the Run the Jewels story. I know we kind of got off. Yeah. So how did how did you and L come to because that 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 group came at a sort of transitional moment? For both Jason of DeMarco of the Cartoon Network, who is um, he's the kind of vice president you want vice president in your company. He was vice president of a company, so we're in the South. I know this don't mean much to people who may not be Southerners, but if you drive a Monte Carlo Super Sport, 1987, you're a pretty badass motherfucker, right? So. <laughs> Jason's 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 a, a white guy who works for Turner. And he drives a Monte Carlo Supersport, so I trust him off the rip. I'm like, you're my kind of motherfucking guy, Jay. And 
he said, I was, I was with Grand Hustle. Shouts out to my Grand Hustle family. And let's pray for my man Clay, who's down right now. Tip, um, Tip gave me a home and a place to be Killer Mike in terms of when I went over to Grand Hustle. And he gave me studio and the freedom to do it. Jason came through, and they were doing something over there. And he stopped, and he said, Mike. I said, what's up? He said, we're going to reopen William Street Records. And unlike you know, when we had, I think the witch doctor had released a record there. He said, we don't have the hugest budgets, we, but I have enough for you to record a record and to put you in with about three producers that I think you may like. Um, Flying Low, of course, was one of the producers. We had did a record called Swimming with him, and that was dope. He said, I'm a, I'd like to put you in L first. Um, so we got in together, and Jason, I think, suspected it on a gut level in a way that me and L didn't, but time L hit the first beat. I was like, oh, shit. This is what Ice Cube felt like when Bomb Squad played beats. Within the third hour, I called Jason, like, you got to convince him to make the whole fucking record. Like, I, I'm supposed to be rapping on LP beats. Yeah. I, I was born to rap on LP beats. The same way Ice Cube was born to rap on, on, on Bomb Squad beats and on Lynch Mob beats. So I knew that I had finally found a sound that was mine. You know what I mean? And when it came time to do, we went out on the road, you know, we, we, we toured together and that was dope. But I noticed that if we were in a room, this would have LP fans, you'd have Killer Mike fans, then you'd have these other kids that just be kind of like sitting to the side. I knew they were kids because they had the X's on their hand, and they couldn't buy drinks. They would, they would go a little wilder when our records came on together that we had on each other's records. Then when we went back out as Run the Jewels, it was Killer Mike, LP, then Run the Jewels would come. Now, Killer Mike would get his, <sighs> LP would get his, <sighs> and those same kids with the X's. We'd come back out and run the jewels, still sweaty. They would lose their fucking minds. And that's when I was like, oh, shit. This is something different. This is my fans. This is L fans. But this is a whole new fan base, the whole new belief system, a whole new structure. And we just leaned into it. I was like, we aren't a real group until we come out with four classic records. We got to do this shit like EPMD, like Outkast, like Led Zeppelin. We just, we got hyped on it. And we understood there was a want for it. And then I understand I understood the next level up when we start coming to the shows and there were girls there. And what, I, what, and what I mean is you don't see a lot of women at underground hip-hop shows and the ones that are are tough as motherfucking nails go-getters. When I saw those tough as nail go-getters show up rocking, I'm like, oh shit, we're on to something. And then when we got to festivals and literally girlfriend and boyfriends were rapping that shit to each other on the first row, I'm like, We've locked in. This is, mm. this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I got to give credit to Jason DeMarco. I have, to, I, have to, I have to tip my hat to me and L's MC egos because our egos stepped to the side. And they just let us as two human beings get in a room like two nine-year-old kids and have fun making music. And um, it's what I intend to be doing the rest of my life with L and beyond. You know, I want, I want to make sure that the Run the Jewels legacy is one that is mentioned next to De La Soul, next to Outkast, you know, next to Dale and the, and the Hieroglyphics. I want to be remembered as one of the absolute best duos to have ever have done this. So, uh, how, how has being in Run the Jewels for the past 10 years aided or how has it affected your solo career and what you're working on now? Um... I mean, it gave me a broader platform. It gave me a bigger audience. People love Run the Jewels, and I love them. It gave me a universe to exist within. Like, if you listen to Mob Deep, you exist within 
Queensbury Housing Project universe, you understand that universe. Right. You know, if, if you're listening to the locks and deep lock, you're in that universe. Dipset, man, you're in their universe. It gave me a universe to house Killer Mike and Michael Render that people finally understood without being in proxy to other people, and in particular, other Southerners, because I'm not a typical Southern rapper, right? There's a, I'm atypical in the way Jay Electronica is atypical, the way Dre and Big have been atypical. It doesn't mean we don't have Southern influence or reference. It means that we go some other places and bring some stuff back that people may not have been used to seeing. So when you put me and L together, it's quite a unique combination. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know all the mysteries. I haven't solved them all, but what I do know is that I'm supposed to be rapping. I'm supposed to be one half of Run the Jewels. And within that, there's a there's there's more like there's there's a place that I can go and run the jewels. When you hear me talk about being on a plane when my mother died, you know I remember being on a plane. I remember my man Sleepy calling me and literally answering the phone, Facetime, to just comfort my mother as she transitioned. You hear that as a bar, and intellectually it hits you. It may hit your heart, but that's not the same as hearing me give a song to my mother, letting her know what I mean and letting that know, letting you know how much that hurt and crippled me. And, you know, I hadn't said the words, my mother's dead until I recorded a record called Motherless. I said my mother transitioned. I said she left me. She got out of here on me. But I hadn't said the words. And then when I said the words, I just poured like a funnel. It just, the tears and the, and the words just came out. And I remember leaving the studio that night, maybe a verse, a verse and a half done, and I was like, shit, man, I'd been paying like ten, twenty thousand dollars for therapy to get that moment, you know? And um, there is a character behind Killer Mike that is a whole human being that I've always wanted people to meet and introduce so they can understand the nuance of why I am. Yeah. So and to that end, and I'm, that's a really good transition. So I just want to talk black creator to black creator real quick. Yes, sir. Right? So. I know I, I struggle with this too, where, you know, it's just you and your laptop, you're just writing a thing, and then the thing goes out. Maybe it doesn't get the reaction, I'm only speaking for myself, maybe it doesn't get the reaction that you wanted it to get, and then it, you're like, okay, well, I'll show them on the next one, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. Do you ever have these moments of like, okay, yeah, that came out, that was cool, but nah, I think y'all still playing with me. <laughs> you know? Oh, no, I feel like that right now. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, as I fucking sit here, I, yeah. I think y'all playing with me. Like, no, I ain't bullshitting all the giggles and shit. Like, I'm not playing. Mm. Like, I, like, go listen to the records I told you to. I bust all your favorite rappers' asses again and again and again. But I had to understand that it's not just about busting asses. It is about helping human beings understand that I share an experience with you that you can meet me at that transcends color, that transcends class, that transcends geographic location, and I meet you right at your humanity. And when you hear a whole project from me, that's what you're gonna hear. Whether you like it or not, it's gonna be on you, but you're not gonna be able to deny her the whole human being. And, and, and you know, imagine what Baldwin must have felt like. Right. Imagine what Zora Neale Hurston must have felt like. Zora Neale Hurston, um, who we celebrate right now is one of the greatest women, black and American authors ever. She was cast to the side by her fellows. As much as I love Langston Hughes, he did her dirty. You know, she didn't get to be who she was after she died. Imagine Vincent Van Gogh. He didn't become who he was after he died. So as an artist, you know, sometimes you got to have that chip on your shoulder. But I guarantee you that if I'm here to see it or not, the world's going to feel me. 
Is, it, is there ever a feeling then, you know, from that artistic standpoint, because you're right, and I feel that way too, where I feel like whatever I write, it's not going to be appreciated until like 20 years later. Whatever. Maybe. So do you feel that way as well? Like you're not really going to get the flowers that you deserve until like way, way later. I don't know. Nah, I think I'm going to get my shit this summer. This summer. Like straight the fuck up. Like I, I can't, I can't, I'm not here to play. Like my, my shit is just put, put it next, like I just told you about rap music, play it next to your classics. <clears throat> I haven't had the promotion and the propaganda machine other people's have, but boy, what I've had is them barbershop conversations. Right. What I've had is that one guy in the barbershop talking about, nah, y'all ain't gonna leave Fatboy off the list. What I've had is the fact that every time I show up, I show the fuck out. So my thing is show out on your own for 45 to 50 minutes and show them what they've been missing. I'm so blessed to be here that I can't be resentful. This is 20 years in the game. You know how many people I've seen come and go? Shouts out to Hurricane Chris. God bless him. He just beat a murder charge. Hurricane Chris is one of the biggest goddamn rappers for one summer in the world. All of a sudden, the brother catching murder and stolen car charges. I'm so blessed, I can't do nothing but expect good things. So each time I drop, no matter how high or low it go, I expect good. I expect best. I expect better. It didn't surprise me that Run the Jewels got introduced by Jeremy Corbyn in England and got to produce and got to um, perform in front of 100,000 people. It didn't surprise me that we did $40,000 plus. It doesn't surprise me because if you surprise, that means you doubted yourself. Right. I can't doubt me. I know I'm dope. You just ain't addicted yet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that. <laughs> I'm going to have to use that one. So... What are some of the nuances of, we were talking, we were also talking about this backstage too, but like in your own words, what are some of the nuances of the black experience that you're talking about in the music that you're working on now? Man, I think, I think if you guys, you know, if you guys really give them a listen, you know what I'm saying? Like when you listen to run, it sounds like a call and response. When I say, God don't like ugly, I ain't one to judge. Whole, whole lot of gold Cubans wear a ton. When that God don't like ugly, so that's something every grandmother said. Yeah. You know, I ain't tell, your grandma tell you that God don't like ugly now. Oh, yeah, all the time. You know, I heard the way you was talking. I heard the way you was talking on the phone to your brother. God don't like ugly. Next thing you know, something bad happened to you. You said, I told you God don't like ugly. That is the same as when your friends tell to you about karma. What she's saying is you're going to have bad karma if you keep being bad to people. Hmm. So those little nuances are what I've went out in the world and understood. I talked to the Dalai Lama, right? So my publicist, Catherine from Biz3, she got me an opportunity to talk to the Dalai Lama. So I'm getting stoned like, what the fuck? Am I going to ask the goddamn Dalai Lama? You know what I'm saying? I, I had these conversations with myself like, nigga, you talking to the Dalai Lama. <laughs> he gave me the exact same advice my grandmother told me. Leave your ego at the door. Leave whoever you think you are there. And enter a place in conversations with people with love. And I thought to myself, this nigga just told me the same shit my grandmama told me. And what it made me understand is that I have not fully, and even though I remembered it, I had not fully accepted the wealth of knowledge and inspiration and information from the two people that raised me, my grandparents, and the culture. And it made me sit back and really just reevaluate culturally what growing up in an all-black neighborhood that wasn't poor, that wasn't distraught. I don't know poverty. I've seen poverty. But I didn't know poverty personally. My, I remember my wife told me one time I told her we had an RV. And she said, and this is my, you got to know Shana. She's like, she's my best friend. A lot of you guys who follow me know Shay. She said, nigga, y'all little fat asses was rich. <laughs> and, I, 
And I said, what are you talking about? She said, y'all had a house. Your grandparents had a rental house. They rented out. Y'all went on vacations. Well, <clears throat> my wife is from the housing projects in Savannah. And what I didn't understand is that culturally what I was being given was something so much more precious than money, the ability to travel, to see other people, to know that everyone was not down and distraught. I grew up with a wealth of knowledge and love and wisdom around me. So, you know, for me, I understand how fortunate I am. I move with that intent. I understand that my grandparents gave me more than enough than what I need. So there's no one new that I'm going to meet that's going to hit me with a lightning bolt. You know, most of the lightning bolts I get hit with, I realize that, oh, shit, I learned that at about 10 years old. Maybe I should focus in on that better. Maybe I should focus that more. Maybe I could sharpen that knife more. But I'm just, I'm about, man, this black experience in America ain't all victimization and violence. The black experience in America, for me and my family, it's not just for me, my family, we still own a farm that my great-grandparents sharecropped and bought in Tuskegee, Alabama. The black experience in Atlanta is my grandmother moving to Atlanta at 18 years old, becoming a nurse, marrying, making sure all her sisters and brothers could come live with her by their own home. So I grew up in this circles of village of people that were successful. They were successful as nurses. They were successful as mechanics. They were successful as dump truck drivers. They went on to become successful as nurse practitioners and doctors and lawyers. And for my father, you know, policemen, my current, my cousins, police chiefs. I've seen the American dream in chocolate my entire life. So there was never any doubt. Yeah. There was never, I didn't have to wait on the Hershey's to get the chocolate American dream. It right. was right there to my left and my right. So, you know, I have, um, I'm a believer in black people. And let me say that again. Because that's not just for black people. Just like Black History Month ain't just for us. I'm a believer in black people. So when you hear my music, I'm giving you what black power feels like when it works. Not when it don't works and we just in defense. I'm letting you know that we are capable, we're able, and that artistically, I don't have to be mad at everything and everybody. Right. And I don't have to be simply seeking escapism. That there's a very real place, like Mark Twain wrote from, there's a very real place like Frost wrote from. There's a very real place where I'm just drinking beer bullshit like Bukowski wrote from. But it's real and it's authentic and it's human. And I think more than anything, that's all I've wanted to do. Much like my hero Scarface, he connected on the same level Shakespeare connected. The human tragedy of emotion, of love, of triumph, of failure. That's what attracted me to his music. That's the exact same thing that attracted me to Othello. Well, yeah, and I was about to say, because we also talked about this, like, you know, hearing about your upbringing now and the fact that you said you came up with, like, De La and you came up yeah. with, like, um, hieroglyphics and, yep. and stuff like that. So coming up in the environment that you came up in, but seeing all the, the black excellence, did it ever make you feel different? Did it ever make you feel sort of left of center? You know what I'm saying? Well, I am different. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, yeah, I remember my, um, my friends were asking me and my sisters, like, why y'all don't talk like y'all from Atlanta? I say, because our grandmother won't let us. <laughs> Notice there was a T in one Atlanta, and there's not a T in the other Atlanta. <laughs> but I know, you know, I know who I am. I know where I'm from. But I never felt like being different was bad. You know, I went to school with so many amazing children that I understood everyone's not the same. And I'll give you some examples. Yeah. So from the sports world, 
Robert Hicks, offensive tackle for Buffalo Bills, Stanley Pritchard, tight end for the Atlanta Falcons and Miami Dolphins, Cameron Dollar, 1995 NCAA champion with UCLA. Um, when you talk about academics, Chief Judge Asha Jackson of DeKalb County, um, Dean Raheem Bia over the Institute of Tech, George Institute of Technology. I went to school. These were my friends. Like, this is who I listened to Too Short with and snuck out and smoke weed and shit with, right? Right. These people were so good at what they did, I got, to, I got early to understand, yeah, I'm probably not going to be a pro athlete. I don't give a fuck how chubby I am. Fuck that football shit. That shit hurt. <laughs> I got a chance to understand that, you know, even though Asha wants me to be a lawyer right now, she's like, you can go to law school after all this rap shit is over. I was like, uh, you are too brilliant. I don't have time to be in law. I want to rap. So I knew I had to be the absolute best at what I did or aspire to be the best at what I did or work toward being the best because I understood that my friends were such a diverse group of people. You know, I don't care what I did, man. I couldn't run the streets as good as Sleepy. He was always better at running the streets with me. That's why I gave him his own church on my TV show. I'm like, Jesus was in the streets and you are too. We're going to bring in people to Jesus. I, um, I understood that I had to be different. I couldn't be a typical rapper doing typical shit because that's how you get typical results. And nothing about me is typical. Mm-hmm. So then, you know... <laughs> Thank you. Go ahead. Let's not be shy. It's a hip-hop show. Go ahead and give it up. All right, so when I listen to your music, man, I hear a lot of, like, the Southern Black Church. Yep. And that's the kind of stuff that I... I grew up in the D.C. area, which is technically... This, Hold on, hold on. Is P- PG County in here or just DC? Okay, DC. Okay. Man, I, I heard backyard is in the, I heard, Listen, yeah, I heard okay. backyard is here today. My wife would appreciate that answer. She's from DC proper. I, I heard backyard. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. So, like, so I hear a lot of, um, you know, the Southern Black Church in your music. Yes. You know, obviously that's done on purpose. What, what kinds of nuances are you pulling from that into your music? Well, he's heard some new stuff you guys haven't heard. Um, and we're going to play it. We got some, we got some cool shit happening later. Um, I went back home. You know, when you listen to Run the Jewels, you're listening to this amazing mutant-like hybrid of Southern and Northern MC together over these, what people describe as dystopian, futuristic, crazy, dope, soul-filled beats but it's not what you would typically hear from a Southern artist, right? Um, In the music that he's heard, what he heard was a genuine homecoming. I left the church in my mid-teens. I searched for God in in, in a million different buildings, in a million different ways and spiritual systems and religions. And what I found, again, after talking to the Dalai Lama, talking to other people, is that my grandmother had already given me everything I needed. You know, she had already given me love for human beings. She had already given me and my sisters the obligation to be charitable. And charity is not giving money. Charity is giving time. We would leave church and we would go to the old folks home. My grandmother would help change bedpans. And she's a nurse by trade. So she's doing this for free. She ain't getting paid. She would have us go talk to old people, ask what they needed. She put us in the service of other human beings so young that we don't know how not to do it. And I think that what you are hearing or what you're referring to is my return to a spiritual system that I had abandoned. I remember my white manager, God bless his soul, man, handsome as Brad Pitt. This bastard said, (laughs) 
He said, shit, you believe in God? Man, for years I thought you were fucking atheist. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's not that I didn't believe in God. I just, every, every spiritual system just led you back to a white guy on a dress, right? So, <laughs> and I lost faith in that. But I never lost faith that something unites human beings. And you know how they say there's something out there? I think there's something in here. I think there's something that connects each one of us, regardless of race, creed, color, social class. And I think that something is what many call God, some call Allah, some call Yahweh. I think that that something has purpose for us that transcends money, that transcends land ownership, that transcends even the me of making art, but it's simply to make me know through my art that I'm connected to other human beings and to use my art as a way to make them feel good joy, better, a place to express anger, hurt, sadness, but on the other side, be hope-filled. I learned that in small Pentecostal churches. I learned that in the churches where the people were so poor, they all have to bring some food um, of a different dish, and we'd have potluck at the end of service, so everybody ate something. I learned that, that, that the musicians that were playing in the clubs my mama was going to on Saturdays were the same musicians that were playing in church on Sundays. So there was no disconnect between the sinner and the saint for me. The same people that were sinning with my mama on Saturdays was the people that were showing up to make sure my grandmama was rocking in the name of the Lord on Sundays. So it's like that scene in The Color Purple where Suge Avery hugs her daddy and say, see, daddy, you know, sinners have souls too. And that moment happened to me in making this record. I wish I could call Betty and just say you was right. God damn it, you was right. I still don't think Jesus is white, but mama, you was right. <laughs> you know? That sounds like a fire album title right there. <laughs> all right, well, first of all, give it up for Mike, y'all. We got... Uh, All right. <laughs> Thank y'all so much, man. Thank y'all so much. Thank y'all. Don't leave yet. We actually have some more questions here. We have some audience Q&A here. My bad. Appreciate the, uh, the yeah. applause, absolutely. Thank y'all so We got some questions here that I'm obligated to read, so <laughs> let's go ahead and do it. They're from y'all. So, from so. y'all, so yeah, I want to give y'all some, some light, too. All right, first question is from uh, Quinn Erickson. Quinn Erickson in here? Quinn? I, I heard, okay, shout out to Quinn. Okay, what does it mean to be part of a hip-hop group nowadays in an age when everyone goes solo? Oh, man, for me, it's, it's, um, it's my rock. It's my foundation. I love being in a group with LP. He's the greatest rapper producer ever because I know he writes his own raps because I'm sitting there looking at him. Um, I know he makes his own beats because I'm sitting there looking at him like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, I love it. it but, but again, I describe if I am ever to make a solo record, it is not going solo. It is just an extension of our X-Men universe where you get to learn about Logan before he became Wolverine. Right on. All right. Sunita Haynes. Am I saying that right? Sunita Haynes in here. Yeah. All right. So uh, she wants to know, uh, what are you currently listening to and how do you feel about the state of hip hop today? I'm currently listening to a lot of shit that I made. 
and, 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 and listening to it, I feel great. Hip-hop's going to be great another 50 years. Um, other, other artists that, are, that, I'm, that I'm listening to, and uh, literally what I was listening to before I left the house was um, Cuz Light Years' um, last album on Mass Appeal. I was listening to Glorilla shit because I think she's dope, and she makes me feel like when I first heard Young Gangsta Boo. Um, I'm listening to Young Boot. Um, Schooly, me and Tip, a record called Real Atlanta, which dropped today, which I'm in love with because I miss the old Atlanta, miss the real Atlanta. Um, David Banner sent me something the other night that he's gonna drop on y'all. It's gonna be pretty fucking dope too. Um, I'm, and, and I'm listening, like I listen to everything. Like I'm one of those guys, like I'm gonna listen to everything. And I've been, I've been really, for the last few months, because I've been trying to stay in my own rap lane, I've been listening to a lot of R&B. So SZA, a lot of Summer Walker has been listened to. And, um, I think that's about it for this week. You said for this week. Yeah, I change weekly. Like there's some, yeah. there's some weeks where all I listen to is Frank Sinatra and Snow. You know, because that's usually when I'm driving my wife's S550. When I get back in like one of my old school cars, I'm taking that shit back. UGK, Face, you know, Scarf, um, Scarface, I, um, Cube, um, Outcast, of course, because I'm cruising Atlanta. But yeah, right now I would say the most lit shit right now is I, I love, I love Glow. She's killing shit. All right, Daniel Fernandez, you in here? Right. What up, Dan? All right. Are there any new musicians that inspire you or get you excited for the future? Uh, right now, me. I, I just, I'm telling you, Danny. I got some. I got some shit for you, man. I got some shit. And 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 I'm and I'm, I, What I'm really excited about as a movement because it's never been acknowledged. Um, Hip hop has been fair with women, and what I mean is, a big part of the reason I'm sitting here is because of Roxanne Chante, my mother was a drug trafficker, God bless her soul, and an artist, however, floors. She took a trip to New York. She said it wasn't illegal, but she took a trip to New York, and a 15-year-old girl who was headed to a group home signed a real picture for her and sent it back to her son. And I still have that picture, and it was Roxanne Chante. So whether it was Roxanne Chante, whether it was Salt and Pepper, Queen Latifah, Sweet Tea, um, Yo-Yo, all these women artists have spent the last 40, 50 years giving a foundation to this plethora of women that are out there now. So what's most exciting to me right now is, is dope-ass husky voice girls from the South making dope-ass records that are G'd up. So I got to give it up for, for women right now. I'm really proud. I'm really proud that hip-hop has always made a space for women because, mm. you know, people talk about being annexed out. But too short, one just talking pimp shit. And I remember that go back and forth. They call you yuck mouth. You refuse to brush. No, sweetheart. You can keep that kiss. That was, that was like, I remember being in the school dance, rapping at the girls. I remember when Trina and Trick dropped now. Like, there's always been a presence in hip hop and now that presence is a dominant one and I'm very proud of us as an artistic culture to for for doing that and for always making room and now women have on the floor so there's always going to be dope rappers on both sides but I think that we that we've solved a lot of problems before people start giving us advice and the problem was if you hear something you don't like make a track and diss that motherfucker back lady All right all right so I'm going to go to Devon Boyd here um, Devon Boyd, am I saying that right? Yeah. Devin, excuse me, my bad. You have a song with Bobby Sessions. Yeah, shouts out to Bobby. Did you initiate that? Or Bobby reached out to me. I was honored. It was when KP was over at Def Jam. I think KP was, um, KP was A&R and him. KP is, is the A&R with A&R at me. He A&R tip. He A&R 
Usher, you know, he's just, he's a brilliant A&R now, uh, a DJ, is, he's been a DJ, um, but he's a DJ as well, member of the Dungeon family. But man, when he and Bobby reached out, I was honored. Bobby's one of the, the greatest pins in the game today. And te I believe a Texas guy too, so shouts out to Bobby. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Nigel Brown. Nigel in here? Uh-huh. You talked about doing the work. What keeps you encouraged as you try to affect change and get people involved in community projects? What advice can you give? Man, the, the advice I'll give you is very simple. Stay hyper-local. Don't get caught up in the, the soap opera-ism of national politics and debates and elections. What's going on in your city council? What's going on in your ward or your district? What do your 10 neighbors to the right and left think? I think if you stay hyper-local, you'll be able to to create systemic change in a, in a different way. So if we, if we get romanticized up and say, well, we voted for this guy for president, he won or lost, you get captivated and not only caught up in that. If you stay hyper-local, you get to say, hey, man, the garbage men deserve to be paid more. Teachers deserve to be paid more. Policemen and fire people deserve to be trained better and paid more. You get an opportunity to say there needs to be a community board on the police department that has power to indict. You know, you get to, you get to do things, you, you get to do things in a way that provides example and can scale up. Judge Asha Jackson, who was, again, a friend of mine, had been brilliant since we were 11, she started a program that gave offenders who came in her, her courtroom an opportunity to take a year of their life instead of going to prison, they would have a year to redeem themselves. That program was picked up by a woman named Ms. Ali, who was formerly out of juvenile court. She was appointed by our current governor, Brian Kemp. She's over the Georgia Defense, um, the, the Georgia um, Public Defenders Foundation. I am, she made me the chair of that council. She started the Ladders program, which was mirrored after Judges Jackson's program. They just graduated their first class of kids who would have went to prison or jail. These kids are now partnered with the trade school, in trade school, and going to graduate out the other side of that trades people making $70,000 a year better. That's because she turned hyper-local, found a judge that did it, and it worked out of that court. Now she's made it a state program, and I'm proud to say that I'm pushing our governor texting him like, yo, you need to make this program something that we can get versus mandatory minimums on five and 10 years because a child happens belongs to a gang. So I'm pushing the line, hyper-local. I think you stay hyper-local, and I think the other thing you do is get your hands dirty. Get out um, and organize with people. You don't organize for people because that somehow puts you over or outside of the people. Get your ass in the trenches, find one thing you really care about, and organize around it. And it's that simple. If all of us in this room do a little bit, no one person will ever have to do a lot. All right, I'm gonna go to the top one. Okay. All right. Yep. Okay, we got a question from Anonymous. Shout out to Anonymous. Um, <laughs> you know this is gonna be a deep question. Uh, nah, but uh, okay, I don't want so. you to know who I am. <laughs> right, right, right. And it got two likes on here, so I got to ask it. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to read verbatim. Your father was a cop. As yeah. someone who actively protests, protests police, spits in the face of authority, how do you balance your beliefs and your relationships? Um, well, my, my cop, my father was a policeman, and two of my cousins currently are. I have a cousin that's a police chief. I have a cousin that's a um, sergeant, a SWAT team member, and... Um, I think you balance because we still black men. We we still we still have the same fears, you know. Um, we still for our children. And I'm not talking about personal fears. Like I want my children to survive the encounter, you know. I want the state 
to, to not see me as something, and this is just poor people, period, not even just black people. I want the state to see me as a human being and not a piece of, not just a, a cattle to be, you know, moved around or an inconvenience that's standing in front of a building. So what it has led to in my life is my father saying to me, you know, this is the way you survive an encounter from a structure standpoint. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. There's no disrespectful way to say those things, say those things. It, 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 is, it has been instilled in me by, shouts out to the pot brothers-in-law, shut the fuck up. If you know you're going to get arrested, if you, you, these are your rights, this is not. Shut, I've had to learn from a very practical standpoint, this is how. But I think in terms of just being a black man in this country, my father understands and understood that he's raising a black child that's going to grow to be a black man. My cousins are black men. So there's no one problem solver conversation we've had as much as I want my cousins to make it home safe to their children. Um, I want them to make it to the family reunion. And I also am always going to hold the state accountable for being fucking evil. And that's just what it is. The state values property over human life. The state values what you pay in tickets over you having food in your refrigerator. And the way you change the state is to stay hyper-local and watch the judges and the prosecutors and the mayors and the police chief and punish those motherfuckers. I mean literally punish them. They are drunk with power. Every judge wants to sit on that bench forever. Every prosecutor wants to matriculate up all the way to their vice presidency or presidency or whatever fucked up fantasy they have. Take those motherfuckers out at the knees. If you see a non-compassionate prosecutor, run someone against them. Reach out to people like Teslin Figaro right here in, um, in Houston teaching people how to run for office. It is time for us to get off the sidelines, to get involved, and the state should fear the people and not the other way around. It's that simple. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're coming up on it. We're coming up on it. So everybody, kill a mic. Mike Render. I can knock. I'm going to knock these three out really quickly since oh, we're already. All right. Who are your, favorite, who are your top five rape, favorite rappers ever? I'm going to give you this. Scarface, number one. Add any other fun motherfuckers you want to. Um, <laughs> What was it like working with Outkast? I called Big and Dre the other day to say thank you for giving me an opportunity to absolutely change my life. They taught me to be brave, they taught me to be bold, and they gave me an opportunity that 20 years later has feed my children and helped me to be a man I am. What does De La Soul music finally hitting streaming mean for both you guys? Okay. It means that the evil motherfuckers damn near won, but thank God. I hate that one of my brothers had to be gone before it happened, but I'm happy that De La got there just due. And um, I just want to tell everybody, man, Keep this shit hip-hop. Whether you're a writer or a DJ or a b-boy or a rapper, keep the entire culture alive. I love you all, and thank you for having me and Marcus. Yeah.